Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. I'd like to welcome again our uh, viewers and listeners uh, for another of our sessions of interview with the experts. My name is uh, Malcolm Bell, and I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Alan Lewis, uh, who's an associate professor of medicine. He's a member of our division of cardiovascular ultrasound and has specialized in the treatment of uh, carcinoid heart disease, among many of his other uh, interests, but uh, this particular group of patients. So uh, welcome, uh, Alan. Thank you very much, Malcolm, for the invitation to chat with you today. So, you know, this is not a common condition. Uh, my understanding is it's uh, perhaps being increasingly uh, recognized, but maybe it'd be a, a good thing for our um, uh, audience here to just maybe have a reminder of, you know, what exactly is carcinoid heart disease? That's a great question to start with, Malcolm. I think you know, carcinoid tumors are incredibly rare. These are tumors that are usually of gut origin when we think about them embryologically. So typically they occur from bowel and sometimes from the lung. Typically we don't find out about them until they metastasize and they don't cause carcinoid heart disease until the hormones produced by these tumors can enter the systemic circulation. So most commonly these people have fairly advanced liver metastases that can then access the systemic circulation and exude a whole lot of hormones into the bloodstream. We think that the serotonin, which makes up a major component of these hormones, then acts on valvular tissue, causing valve fibrosis and retraction. And so as a result of this valve fibrosis and retraction, we get a combination of regurgitation and stenosis that causes valvular dysfunction. The disease most commonly affects the right-sided valve, the tricuspid valve universally, the pulmonary valve almost universally, and much less commonly affects the left-sided valves, namely the mitral and the uh, aortic valves. Really, treatment for this condition uh, sometimes starts with diuretic therapy, but you often get to a stage that the valve disease can't be controlled with diuretics alone and need to consider cardiac surgery because that has been shown to prolong life. You know, in these patients who have carcinoid disease and uh, with metastases, but when they're first diagnosed with that disease, what, what's the typical lag period you know, between the, the onset of the, the carcinoid disease and the involvement and but particularly the symptomatic involvement uh, of the heart? And, and maybe also as you think about or answer that, are these patients typically screened uh, with echocardiography early on in the diagnosis, maybe before they even have symptoms of uh, heart disease? Absolutely. Another great question, Malcolm. And so the so these patients often don't know that they have a tumor at the time that they first notice the tumor. Most of the metabolites are metabolized by the liver. They can be tiny tumors. And so they go unknown until they develop metastatic disease. Often the presenting symptom is that of carcinoid syndrome, which is facial flushing, diarrhea, and wheezing, and has nothing to do with their heart disease whatsoever. Really, we believe that the likelihood of developing carcinoid heart disease really relates to the volume of circulating hormone and that circulating serotonin that enters into the bloodstream. So the more liver, more the burden of liver disease and the greater the metastatic load, the more likely we believe that you are to develop carcinoid heart disease. 
the incidence of calcineurotic heart disease really is quite variable in the literature. It can range anywhere between 20 and 50%, so really quite a large proportion. Our current guidelines recommend screening all patients for the possibility of carcinoid heart disease. The data is a little bit variable. Some people would recommend screening with an NT-proBNP. And if your NT-proBNP is normal, then you don't need to do any further evaluation. We can just continue to screen them with an NT-proBNP. Our practice has tended to be to prefer echocardiography because we find that only the minority of people have a truly normal NT-proBNP. And so we find that often these people need screening with echocardiography. Guidelines recommend screening with screening with an NT-proBNP and or echocardiography at the time of initial diagnosis. The reality is this can be an incredibly rapidly progressive disease as opposed to other valvular heart disease. And there is literature from some of our colleagues internationally that demonstrate that this valve disease can really progress from nothing to severe valve disease in as little as six months. And so the guidelines recommend really serial follow-up of these patients on a six-monthly basis due to that risk. What's the probability of someone who has carcinoid disease, metastases, that they will develop carcinoid heart disease? Somewhere in the order of that 20 to 50% sort of range, Malcolm. Okay, and and is that dependent then on the you know as you were talking about earlier you know the the, the volume of these uh, vaso vasoactive uh, molecules? Absolutely, you know we think that the more the burden of disease, the more likely they are to develop carcinoid heart disease. And I think there are a variety of patient factors because you do see some people with fairly extensive metastatic disease who interestingly don't have carcinoid heart disease and some on the other end of the spectrum as well. But often when I think of it, the more the burden of disease, the more likely the patient is to develop uh, carcinoid heart disease. So when you see a patient like this, Alan, uh, and they've you know, clearly got symptomatic uh, heart disease, as you said, this is predominantly a, a disease of the right-sided valves, but my understanding is you know, that it could be a small percentage of patients who have left-sided uh, lesions. What's your approach at that point in terms of initiating medical treatment, you know, controlling the uh, th those vasoactive uh, agents, and particularly in terms then maybe talk about you're preparing them for, uh, uh, for surgical uh, intervention. Absolutely. So really one of the key cornerstones of this is you need people with expertise in managing carcinoid heart disease. And really it is a multidisciplinary approach. What you need is an, an oncologist with an interest in neuroendocrine tumors or carcinoid tumors to help you manage this patient, a cardiologist with an interest in this disease, and a cardiac surgical team, including both cardiac surgeon and a steel theology team that is comfortable with dealing with the potential risks of this procedure. It's most important beforehand that in collaboration with the oncologist that the patient is stabilized on a stomatostatin analog. And when they're on a long-term stomatostatin analog and stabilized with at least a few doses for control of symptoms, that really decreases the procedural risk in these, in these patients of having a carcinoid crisis, which can potentially be life-threatening. Our approach to these patients is generally when they when they come in to get them to see what our oncology colleagues, make sure they're stabilized and then discuss this with other people to ensure that the care given is with an understanding of that risk of carcinoid crisis. When we send the patient for coronary angiography or similar to other minor procedures, we would treat these people with a bolus of IV octreotide 
pre-procedure, we would encourage the proceduralist or require the proceduralist rather to have some IV octreotide available in the cath lab or in the procedure room in case of a carcinoid crisis. Now, they don't necessarily have to open the wild because it is expensive, but it is important not to be waiting for the pharmacy to send it up in the event of a carcinoid crisis. And most people get through coronary angiography just fine doing that. Let me stop you there because I think that's an important thing. Uh, you, we often think about you know, some major procedure uh, in dealing with a carcinoid crisis there, but you know, just preoperative diagnostic coronary angiography is you know, a fairly simple procedure these days. So I think that the point you're making, making sure you've got the octreotide ready there and have enough of it because you know, if there truly is a big crisis, um, you, you may need more than one vial you know, to, to get that patient uh, through. But, but now talk about uh, preparing them for surgery. Uh, how, how do you go about that? And then uh, and maybe, uh, maybe just describe what goes on uh, intraoperatively and postoperatively in terms of keeping that patient hemodynamically stable. Absolutely. So you're looking for the right operative candidate, someone with symptoms, uh, often refractory to therapy, someone who's not too frail to get through surgery with a good quality of life. And in these patients, when they come to the time of surgery, you really want to be more aggressive in terms of your use of triotide to prevent a carcinoid crisis, because the bigger the procedure, the bigger the risk of the carcinoid crisis. The reality here is, once again, we would give them an IV bolus pre-procedure, but then we would run them on an IV octreotide infusion into the post-procedural setting in the intensive care unit, and then uh, stop it at that time point. I think it's really important for the anesthesiology team to recognize that hypotension uh, may not just be due to the typical post-operative indications, and really hypotension here is likely a marker of carcinoid crisis. They really need to be prepared to give more octreotide and be generous with the octreotide. Side effects or adverse effects due to octreotide are unlikely, and so you can use it fairly safely in this sort of setting to manage your patient and then do other measures alongside that. But really important to remember in the intraoperative and postoperative setting that once again, octreotide is, is very important. Yeah, thank you for uh, for emphasizing that. I think that's probably all we have time to discuss, uh, unless there's any other points you want to make uh, for our uh, audience. No, I think uh, I think that covers all the major points. I think one of the things to, to realize is that some of these patients live a very long length of time. And so unlike other tumors, carcinoid does not mean that they've reached the end of the road. And we have some of these patients that 10 and 20 years past initial diagnosis, so really it's a tumor with good longevity. Um, I think it's important to recognize that cardiac surgery can improve survival. And I'd encourage our audience to listen to another talk on carcinoid heart disease that will be coming out of the near future by our cardiac surgery colleague, Dr. Juan Crestonello. It's it's really good to hear you say that in terms of you know the survival um, that you know it's not necessarily yes. You know, an immediate you know, death sentence. You know, if you've got metastatic disease and and but taking care of the uh, the, the heart condition and uh, that will improve uh, survival. So, uh, thanks for making that uh, point. And and we will be uh, you know discussing you know, the surgical aspects with Dr. Crestinello in the very near future. You know, to follow this. So, uh, thanks for uh, uh, for reminding us uh, of that. So, Alan, uh, really uh, delight to have you with us uh, today. Um, you know, to uh, participate in this uh, discussion. I think it's is um, 
know, it's a complex and fascinating uh, disease. So uh, thank you very much for sharing your experience and, and your expertise uh, in this area. Thank you very much, Malcolm. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.